If God does not exist, the very point of our gathering this morning, of our praying to him, of our singing to him, the very point of opening up the word right now, listening with the ears of our hearts, if God does not exist, all of this is worthless. So let me just ask you a question. You might be attending here as a seeker, or you may be a 30-year member here. Are you here because you believe God exists and want to hear from him? Not only would our gathering be pointless, but the encouragement and joy and peace that we experience because of God would be really worthless. We would be less encouraged if God does not exist. We'd be less joyful. We'd be less peaceful. Perhaps, maybe a better way of saying it, we would be bamboozled if God does not exist. Are you encouraged when you come together like this this morning and focus your attention and ask God to work in your heart so that you might see him and that your faith might grow? Do you anticipate a measure of joy and peace when we come together because God is real? If God does not exist, we are not accountable to him. If God does not exist this morning, our moral lines should be, would be, very different. As Christians, we believe that God determines what is right and wrong. So if there is no God, who knows, maybe we wouldn't even think in terms of what is right, rightness or wrongness. We would probably think in terms of, well, what is most helpful for me this morning? What is most beneficial to me? What do I think really the majority of the population would flourish from? What do we want? And of course, that kind of thinking is opposed to the very basic truth taught all over Scripture from beginning to end that it's not about us. We are very not glorious, just in case you haven't looked in the mirror this morning. I see all of you, not very glorious. Bad way to come back from vacation with insults to the congregation. <laughs> and you see me, not very glorious. Do you make decisions as though God, creator God, exists? Husbands, do you relate to your wives as though God is? Wives? to your husbands, all of us, do we relate to our fellow man? Do we relate to the world as though God is, as though God is present, as though God exists, and even that we are accountable to him? Our psalm this morning begins with David opening up a door, a door that is opened and that allows us to hear a voice and according to verse 1, it is the voice of the fool. So point one of the sermon, verse 1, the fool's denial. The fool's denial. In verse 1, we hear the fool's denial, and it sounds forth from a very specific place. It sounds forth from his heart. 
It's from his heart that he says, there is no God. Now, that is a defining statement for this individual. From the very deepest parts of who he is, that's what the heart is. He is saying, God is not. The heart is the deepest part of who we are. This is how especially the Old Testament saints thought of us as individuals. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why would you keep your heart? Because everything in your life flows out of it. David asked God in Psalm 51 verse 10, he said, Create in me, God, please create in me a clean heart. And why would he pray that? This was after his sin with Bathsheba. He knew that his heart was the first domino to fall. It led him to acting out in lustful, sinful desires, even killing a man. It all started with his heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, what you want, what you desire, your heart is going to be on a leash right behind that treasure. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the heart is the deep part of who we all are. It's that control room. It's the part where your deepest concerns, your deepest fears, your quiet and most private thoughts take place that you might not even share with anyone. And now... God, inspiring David, has opened up the door to the heart of a fool, and we see his chief characteristic. Inside the control room, there's a message that is echoing forth, and we hear it. There is no God that comes from the heart of this fool. Literally, the text reads, the fool says in his heart, no God. Now, the fool might not say it out loud because that's not always advantageous to make this claim out loud. But it's happening in his heart. The name for God here in verse 1 is different than what we'll see in different verses here in Psalm 14. The name here is Elohim. It's the name used for God in the very opening chapters of Genesis as the creator, the one who made all things The one who on day six came to the pinnacle of creation and said, I'm going to make man. After all that has been made, here we are, here's man, and how am I going to make man? I am going to make him out of the dust, but I'm going to make him very special because he is going to be created in my image, after my likeness. And so man himself reflects God in a way that animals don't, in a way that clouds don't, in a way that the sun does not. Man is walking around with an imprint on him that testifies to God. He's an image bearer of God. So by his very nature, the psalmist would say, God exists because he is a walking blueprint. He is a walking mirror. This last week we had VBS and I was helping with registration for a few days and parents would come in with their children And there were some parents where it was unmistakable, that child belongs to you. There is an imprint. There is an image. And it would have been absolutely foolish for the child to shout out, 
My parent is not. There is no parent of mine. And I can do whatever I want. As humans, we're all made in God's image, which implies that we have a relationship to him. And according to Genesis 1, the Elohim, the creator, God has made us to be in a relationship with him, even a relationship of submission as the created is in relationship to the creator. Yet, the fool says, no, I will not have that in my life because there is no God. So what does the Bible say about the fool? In verse 1, he says that they are corrupt. It's the same word that is used from Genesis chapter 6, when God came and destroyed the earth with a flood, Genesis 6, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The earth was filled with sin. My grandma in northern Illinois had an older house. And in my childhood memories, you go down into the basement of that house, and the walls were actual stones, not cinder blocks, but stones that were mortared together. And my childhood memories have it as a very dark, dank place. It's the bottom of the house. The denial of God, the denial of his existence, the life that is lived as though God does not exist, leads us to the bottom level. Dark, dank basement of morality. It leads to moral corruption. And so here, characteristic number one is the fool is, whereas he says God is not, God says the fool is. And what is the fool? The fool is corrupt now because of his denial of God. They do abominable deeds. Luke chapter 16, verse 15 says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And the idea is that anything that becomes central to a person's life, anything that rises above God that he gives or she gives her life over to, it is exalted above God, and that now becomes an abomination. It's like a husband saying to his wife, you don't exist. I have now turned to something or someone far more important to me. And the wife is going to look at that thing and say, well, that is an abomination. That is wrong because that's not how this relationship is to work. It's a disgust in her eyes. And so God looks at the fool and says, these actions of denial are an abomination. Third, there is none who does good. So you have these three overflowing consequences of what the fool says in his heart. Corruption, abominations in the eyes of God, and morally, no good. Now, at this point, you're asking the question, wait a second, I have friends, I have family members, and I would describe their lives at times as being very moral. They stick to a code of ethics. What about the moral atheist? Yes, there are those who say there is no God, and yet they help the poor. 
They dig wells in arid places. They provide medical help to those who can't get it. They send food to the hungry. Some advance the arts and sciences so that there's human flourishing. Perhaps even you've had mentally stimulating, productive conversations with those who would say, no God. What about these moral atheists? This is God's common grace to us that moral things in their lives would abound. Yet, we're not looking at this individual right now through our eyes. We're looking at this individual through how God sees man, the divine point of view. Towards God, they are doing those things. Why? Because they love those things more than they love God. Again, think of the wife whose husband says, I'm leaving you. I've thought long and hard about this, and I've come to the conclusion that I need to leave you. I need to do it in order to make my business grow. It's a business that will change the world, and it's a cure to the common cold. And everybody in the world picks up on the cure to the common cold, and we applaud the individual who gave us the cure. And yet, he abandoned the relationship of marriage. He no longer prioritizes his wife. In her eyes, she can see he left me. In his eyes, she does not exist. Now, even more than a wife, God is to be central in everything that we do because of who he is as the Elohim creator. He is much greater than a spouse. And therefore, any departure from him, from God's eyes, morally speaking, it's wrong, it's corrupt. The Lord continues his assessment in verses two through four. So point two to the sermon, the Lord's assessment. In verse two, now the name changes. The name in verse 2 is LORD. You see it as all caps, L-O-R-D. No longer Elohim, but David is now speaking about Yahweh. Same being, different name, to express that this is the personal, this is the covenantal, this is the relational side of God. Now, he looks down on those whom he has created. He looks down on the children of man, not the children of God. This is the children of man. And these people who have not responded to God in faith, they have not entered into a relationship with him. There are three more characteristics. So if you're taking notes, these would be like four, five, and six to the one, two, and three above. Notice what he says here in verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse three, they have all turned aside. That's the fourth characteristic. They have become corrupt. That's the fifth one. And there is none who does good, not even one. Now, we've heard this language before. Paul picks up this language in Romans 3 to talk about the state of man before he enters into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Paul is unpacking a theme in Romans where he's talking about the sinfulness of man. And he uses these phrases from Psalm 14 to describe us in a very honest way of who we are before we come into a relationship with God. We were the children of man. We all are born as the children of man. 
The question is whether or not one crosses over into faith and becomes the children of God. But as the children of man, we are completely lost. All of us, Nate Burkholz, has been tainted by the corruption of sin in every part of who I am. And there is nothing good, morally speaking, from God's perspective in me as a child of man. And so very much we could say that we have all been the fools at some point in our lives. Before Christ, we set up our lives with something or someone other than God at the very center. And what we want for our lives is that thing that is most important. God becomes irrelevant, and consequently, we are sinners. So we could say, Christians, that in verses 1 through 3, we've all been there. I was talking with an individual years ago, actually from Minnesota, and he said to me, one of the things that he appreciated about the military is that when they came in, they stripped away everybody's identity. It didn't matter if you came from Beverly Hills or the hood. When you came into the military, your identity was gone and everybody was the exact same. Shaved heads, green fatigues. And it's similar like that. When we come to the cross, we all have the same identity. All of us are Romans 3 sinners, morally bankrupt, deserving of God's eternal judgment. We are the fools. And that's why we need Jesus. We need a Savior who will deliver us from our sin and from God's righteous judgment towards our sin. That's why Jesus came into the world. 1 Timothy 1, trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, of whom I am foremost. St. Paul said that. Jesus came, he lived a perfectly obedient life to God, and yet went to the cross and suffered as a fool. He substituted himself on our behalf, dying under the judgment of God, rising three days later as a sign that he had conquered the sin of fools. We need Jesus. You might be here this morning, and you might be tire-kicking, you might be seeking, God might be sending that little electrode to your heart saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. And I would just invite you to the scriptures this morning that say, trust in the Lord God with all of your heart. Believe in him and have everlasting life. Going from a child of man and being brought into God's family as a child of God, not by any merits of our own because we all show up to the cross with the same identity. We're sinners. Here's the goodness of God saying, I will welcome you in on account of my son. Trust him. Verse four asks a question. And it's a question that I think lingers in our minds. What about these fools? Have they no knowledge? In other words, is there anything floating through their minds that says, 
I should not be doing this. Or perhaps there is a being, a divine being to whom I am accountable. Have they no knowledge that God is, in contrast to verse 1? It's a question that is fair to ask of today's world for us. Today's culture, with the fool living with a denial in their heart that God does not exist, we are asking the question, do they know? Is there anything there that says otherwise? Now, where should we go to answer that question? Have they any knowledge? Should we sit back and you know, look to ourselves for answers? No, we should go to the Bible. So save your spot here in Psalm 14 and go over to Romans chapter 1. David is asking the question, have they any knowledge? Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read a little bit of an extended passage. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, I want you to notice this next phrase who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. So there's the first part of the answer. They have the truth, and we know they have the truth because Paul says they have to suppress it. You've had a $20 bill or a knick-knack that maybe you hid from the kids, grandkids, somebody coming over. At one point, you had knowledge of it, but then you hid it suppressed it somewhere, and eventually it went out of your mind. Couldn't find it, now it's lost. And I think that it is a similar situation with Romans 1. A lost person has knowledge of what is right and wrong, but then they bury the truth. They suppress it under all kinds of layers of sin and denial. And the truth does become lost, if you will. Verse 19 continues on. For what can be known about God is plain to them because, here it is again, God has shown it to them. In what way? Continuing on. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, which have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, They are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because they have knowledge. For although, and here's the word again, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their, here's the word from Psalm 14, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged, so they had it. They exchanged something. They exchanged the glory of the immortal, the eternal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, there's the word, there's the idea, they had it. You have to have it in order to exchange it. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit, there it is again, like they had it, but they didn't see fit to do it. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You can go through the rest of the chapter. So folks, the question is, have they no knowledge? And there's a temptation on our human level of thinking, our human perspective to say, well, they must not. Otherwise, they would live differently. And yet, our human level of thinking must submit to God's word. And here is God's word to say, no, there is a truth that they have had about God. They may not know the gospel. But the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in creation. And God says, because that's there, they have a knowledge of his existence that they are accountable to a creator. Now, what can we do with this? For me, when we answer that question, have they any knowledge, with a biblical yes, they do, this is one of the most reassuring truths for me when it comes to sharing Christ with someone. Because according to God, tucked deeply, even though it's suppressed under layers and layers of denial, perhaps years and years of abandoning God, Tucked deeply in the heart of man is a burning coal in each person. It's an ember of truth that says God does exist and he is real. And what I want to do as a Christian is come up alongside of that person lovingly and just blow on that ember with truth. And let that ember come to life if God wills. Have they any knowledge? Yes. Every God-denying person in the world has been given the ember of truth that God does exist. And there's another burning ember here. Go back to Psalm 14. There's another burning ember. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, There they are. There they are in great terror. Why? For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So verses 5 and 6, the third point of the sermon is the fool's fear. The fool's fear. And it's also the second ember that we're looking at. Fear here. David is back to the perspective of the lost person, and notice the name he uses for God. It's Elohim. They're not in personal relationship with him. One of the realities that struck fear into the hearts of the surrounding nations of Israel, when Israel came up out of Egypt and uh, began their conquest of the land, one of the fears 
that struck the hearts of, of the people, the nations, was that God was with his people. And perhaps some of the nations had come up to the edge of the camp, maybe up on a mountain and peeked over the mountain and saw Israel and the camp. And you remember it from Numbers. What was at the center of the camp? God, the tabernacle. And above the tabernacle was the presence of God manifested in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had seen the presence. They had seen the manifestations of God. Others had heard. We've heard how your God brought you up out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched hand. Others had heard how God had defeated Jericho on behalf of his people. The presence of God is like an ember because it strikes fear in the heart of the God denier. What if God is? Does God's presence cease to exist today? No. Creator God, the God of strength and power, Yahweh, Lord, personal, relational God, is with you, Christian. And there is an ember again that is burning in the heart of the God denier when he sees God's people and it testifies to God's presence. Let me give you several passages. Number one, our obedience to God testifies to the existence of God. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So then let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This reminds me of that passage where Peter spoke to the wife of an unbelieving husband where she, he encouraged her to live obediently to Christ so that even if some, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wife, their actions. Our obedience to God is, if you will, fanning the ember of fear in a good way in the heart of a God denier. Our obedience to God is a sign of his presence. Number two, our love for one another is as well. John 13, verse 35, Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, I've grown up in a Christian home, and yet there are times where I wonder, what's it like to be on the outside driving past this particular location where there's a bunch of cars that come together? That has some message, and yet there's a message if you go past Van Andel Arena and there's a bunch of cars there. What happens more is that when Christians live out their lives publicly with love for one another out of their obedience to God, it testifies, I'm doing this because God exists. And somebody would say, why do you live with that kind of love in your heart? That's different. I live for me. And when it becomes inconvenient for me to serve others, I stop. And Christians say, no, we lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for us. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. 
Third, our proclamation of the truth has to be there. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so the idea is that we would be sent with words. And Paul says, that's how people are going to be saved. Words have to be spoken. So our proclamation of the truth is a testimony to God's presence. Verse 6, David continues the theme again, speaking of this God denier who would shame the plans of the poor, the vulnerable, but the Lord is his refuge. Again, the thought is that David is encouraged that the vulnerable among God's people are protected by the Lord. Okay, so now, where do we go with all of this? Here's six verses stacked up. Where do we live? Over the past years, we have seen and heard much foolishness. Not too long ago, 57% of our state's voting population passed some of the most God-denying views on life making it possible for babies within the mother's womb who could survive outside the womb at that stage to be murdered. The decision and logic clearly comes from the mindset that I'm not accountable. This month of June, it bombards us with unbiblical views of sexuality. One of the leading stories this last week, 150 Starbucks stores might be closed because employees are going on strike because the company is not promoting sinful sexuality enough. I'm leaving because you're not doing enough promotion of it. Pride is rampant. We have leaders that are like lacking repentance in the way that they use their words. He's a born loser. She's a backbencher. She's a sleazebag. The fool speaks loudly right now. There is no God. And what's the path forward for us? We seem to be living right in the middle of Psalm 14. We seem to be living in an era of fools, and yet here's David 3,000 years ago saying, I felt it. Paul and Peter in the first church 2,000 years ago felt it. At one point in the not-too-distant past, it seemed as though the majority of our culture had agreement on character and morality. The voice of the fool on morality was quiet in comparison to today. But over the last couple of decades... The public agreement on character and morality has shifted away from wisdom, from God's wisdom, and now sides with the fool. And Christians are finding that the world has less and less agreement with God's word. So what do we do? One Christian sociologist said this, when you no longer have agreement on character, all you have left is power. What's his point? His point is that as moral decay sets in, as our society now lives out the consequences of its own sin, we find ourselves no longer in agreement with what morality is. Culture says our only hope is to grab the seat of government. 
Now surely and most definitely there is a place for Christians in politics, and I am thankful. We rejoice when officials are elected to hold office and when they are in agreement on biblical morality. We rejoice when officials do not deny the existence of God, but actually attribute existence to God. However, when living among fools, does our hope for a better future depend on our ability to elect officials who can hold the seat of power in our favor? Is our only course power? Do we hope in man? That's the question. Verse 7. Oh, that salvation would come not out of elected officials. Oh, that salvation for Israel, for God's people, would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores, it's going to happen, when the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Israel rejoice. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. And the idea here with Zion is, from the presence of God, salvation is going to come. Zion was used as the presence of God in Jerusalem, and yet as you follow Scripture, Hebrews 12 speaks of Zion as the presence of God. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where you've come to. And you've come to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus. Where do we go? Verse 7 says, we go to Mount Zion for salvation. The hope for Christians living among fools today is that salvation would come from God's presence. And indeed, salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ, where we now are citizens of his kingdom. We are saved, folks, not only from our sin, yes, but we are also saved from the fool determining the end of our lives. We exist among those who deny the existence of God. We exist among those who, whose decisions affect our everyday lives. However, we can rejoice. We can have gladness because from God's presence, salvation has come. 1 Peter 2 verse 6 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And notice this next phrase, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's Jesus, the stone, bringing salvation and welcoming us into his house to be stones that are built upon the cornerstone, welcoming us with the forgiveness of our sins, resulting in a relationship with God forever and ever. So how do faithful people live among fools we don't deny the existence of fools. David is hurting because of the havoc that the fools have wreaked. Maybe you're hurting because of the fools in your life. Maybe you have played the fool. 
And the consequences of your decisions have been somewhat of a punishment in your life, overbearing at times. As Christians, we live in verse 7. And we rejoice because God's salvation has come in Jesus and we're tasting that future salvation. Let's close now with Revelation 21. Revelation 21, because we have this to hold on to as the full installment of our salvation. Revelation 21, picking it up at verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne, I'm sorry, back up in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This will be the second death. The fool will be no more. We rejoice because of God's salvation. We're tasting it now. And we're anticipating Revelation 21 to come. Let's pray.